If you guys would please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, before we get started tonight with uh, the message, I just wanted to share a story with you all. Um, it's actually a song that I want to share with you guys. Um, I didn't want to play the song because, you know, we record these messages now and we post them on YouTube and I didn't want the video to get flagged for like copyright infringement or anything like that. Uh, side note, if you didn't know, these messages are posted up on YouTube and also on Spotify. So if you, um, if you want to listen to these messages, uh, that's there for you. I remember I got an email about a year ago. Uh, from somebody, and they're saying how how much of a blessing it was back then. They're saying how much of a blessing it was to be able to like listen to these messages over again to like really get and retain everything that uh, was said through the Lord. Um, now that was a year ago, so this person's opinion might have changed since then. But I'm just saying, at one point, somebody really enjoyed the fact that these messages are posted up, but they can listen to them again. So maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Um, so anyway. Uh, in an effort to not get flagged on YouTube for using a song without, you know, purchasing the license, uh, there's, there's a song called Penelope Judd. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this song. The, the name of the song is Penelope Judd, and it's by an artist named Shy Lin. He's a hip-hop artist, a uh, Christian hip-hop artist. Um, and this song was kind of written in the style of, uh, of a kid's story. You know, it's, 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 it was like, it's kind of made for kids, but at the same time, it was made for adults to listen to. Um, but in the song, you hear, uh, he talks about this, this little girl named Penelope Judd, and she's from a town called Mud. She, she's from a, from a town called Mud, and in this town, it's just a bunch of kids. There's no adults, there's, there's no authority, there's no rules uh, there's no kindness, no compassion, no love. If you guys have read or seen Lord of the Flies, you, you know, you know, if you leave, I heard there was, a, I saw a clip, there's a TV show where they, they just tried it out. They, they just put a bunch of kids into a house. Yeah, no, no parental supervision. They just put these kids, man, it quickly turned into like Lord of the Flies. Like these kids were vicious and uh, yeah, it was bad. But anyway, so in this town called Mud, it's just a bunch of kids running around covered in mud. They were filthy. So poor little Penelope Judd, she was, a, she was a sad little girl because everyone was just wild. Um, but she had hope. She had a hope because her grandfather had written her a letter. And in this letter, he writes that there's a great king who lives on the mountaintop. And this king, he had a son. And he was going to be throwing, this king was going to be throwing his son a party, a party in, in his son's honor. And so her grandpa lets her know that she's invited. Like you, you all, you guys are all invited to come up to this party and the king is going to be sending a dove. When the dove arrives, the dove will tell you what to do. And so Penelope was excited waiting for this dove to arrive, uh, to, to lead her, to, to follow this dove that's going to lead her to this, this king on, on this mountaintop in this party. And so the dove finally shows up. And, but she has to follow him right away. The dove's like, let's go, we're going. Get, get your bags, let's go. So she runs, she grabs her little backpack. It's probably like a Dora Explorer backpack. Or my, my, my daughter, she has like this little pink backpack. And like on the backpack, it's like uh, a little girl's face with pigtails. It looks just like her. Like we got it before she was even born. Somebody gifted it to us. And we're like, wow, that's crazy. It looks just like her. Anyway, she you know, went and grabbed her little backpack. And she begins following the dove. And as she's following and leaving the town, she sees all of her, her mud, mud f friends 
she's passing by and they all start laughing at her. They start making fun of her because they're just like, how silly, like how silly of you, you're, you're following a dove. And, and, and so she started to feel a little sad, you know, but, but she kept following despite the mocking. And, and a part of her even began to feel like, well, maybe I should stay. Maybe I should stay behind with, with all of my mud friends. Um, but she quickly realized, like, no, I, I'd rather miss out on this and go up to the party that's going to be for the king on the mountaintop. And so with this resolve, she followed the path that the dove was leading her through. And finally, after a long time, they, they finally make it to the foot of the mountain. And so now she has to, now she has to climb. The, 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 the dove leads her to start climbing up this mountain. It was a tough climb. The sky was dark. It was frightening for little Penelope Judge. She, she was frightened, but the dove told her, hey, just keep your eyes on me. Just keep your eyes on me. I'll, I will lead you. I will guide you through this climb up this mountain. So she continued. And there were times when the climb got especially difficult. She would slip. She would fall. She would stumble. But the dove was always there to pick her up to get her back on track. At one point, her little backpack fell, you know, in the struggle to get up this mountain. She, she dropped her bag, but she didn't even care. She's like, I know I'm so close. I don't care about my backpack. I don't care about the things that I brought with me from my mud town. Like, they can go. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to the top of the mountain. I'm almost there. And so she reaches the top, and the dove leads her to the palace. The dove flies away. Penelope rings the doorbell. And a huge angel answers the door. And, and, and as he looks Penelope Judd up and down, you can see that he's observing how dirty and muddy this little girl was. And he asks, uh, can I help you? And Penelope Judd, she informs the angel, like, I'm, I'm here for the party. Like, I got the invite. I, I, I came all this way. I'm here for the party. I, I was personally invited and the angel replies, well, there's no way I can let you in. I mean, look at this palace. Look at it. Look how spotless and clean it is. There's no way I can let you in these doors. The king will not allow anybody to dirty up his palace. And as the angel is about to dismiss her and send her back down the mountain, a voice from inside the palace calls out, you can let her in. There's room for one more. Penelope Judge, she looks up from her shame, and she sees the prince, the, the king's son, smiling at her. He reaches out to touch her, and in an instant, she was perfectly clean and unstained. The mud was completely gone. No longer was she wearing her dirty clothes. She was now wearing the, the brightest, cleanest robe that she had ever seen in her life. Penelope Judd, Understanding that the prince was the one who gave her this robe to put on, she turns to him and she asks, where did you get this? And the prince turns to her and says, actually, it's mine. And so the, the prince then proceeds to lead her into the palace, into the party, uh, where she would be joining in on the celebration. The king was throwing his, his son a huge festival. And I'm sure that the allegory is clear for a lot of people in here, but for those of you who didn't catch it, uh, this is a children's story that describes the believer's journey to heaven. You know, we're all covered in mud. We're all living in a mud town, a mud world, and we're all invited to a great party that the king is hosting in honor of his son. To those who accept the invite, 
The dove guides them to the palace, helping us whenever we stumble and fall as this path to the kingdom, this climb up this mountain, it is difficult. And when we finally get to the palace doors, though we are covered in mud, we are covered in mud and our clothes are filthy, the prince gives us his clean robe to wear so that we can enter into that spotless palace. The prince gives us his clean robe to wear. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And so as we shift our focus now to Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to continue looking at Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to highlight what Jesus says regarding what it takes to be clean enough to enter this kingdom of heaven. But before we do that, we have to pray. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everybody who's here. I'm so, I'm so, so thankful for everyone you brought here tonight, Lord. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you would empty every single one of us of ourselves. God, I, 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 know what you, I know what you've given me to communicate tonight, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be the one communicating to every single one of us. If, you're, if, if your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, if you are not here, this is all pointless. So please, please, Holy Spirit, speak to these people. Speak to me. Speak to everyone who is going to hear this later. And I pray that you would be glorified, Lord. I pray that you would be glorified by everything that happens tonight. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the title of tonight's message, if you're taking notes, is I'm feeling righteous. I'm feeling righteous. Uh, so let's begin reading Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 1 to get the flow of Jesus' words. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And we'll stop there. So here we have Jesus 
after he gets baptized by John the Baptist and he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the desert being tempted by the devil, he's providing insight into the kingdom of heaven. And, and this insight is very different than what most people were expecting. You know, our entire time in the Sermon on the Mount, he has been spent, it's been spent diving into just how different this kingdom is. The, this new kingdom is the new covenant. And it's very, it's very different from the old covenant. Or at least uh, what people thought the old covenant was. Jesus is going to provide some clarity in the later verses of, of, of chapter 5 about the old covenant and some of the commandments. But this kingdom is different. And although Jesus is introducing this new kingdom and new covenant... Last week, we, we talked about how Jesus stated that he didn't come to annul or destroy the previous covenant, the law and the prophets. Rather, he came to fulfill it. He came to accomplish it. He came to do what no other human could do. That was to live in complete obedience to God's perfect law. And then Jesus goes on to further solidify the significance of God's law by stating that if anyone tries to diminish God's law and his commands and teaches others to do the same thing, they will face the consequence of being least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who upholds and does God's laws and commands and teaches others to do the same in upholding and keeping God's laws and commands, they will be considered great in the kingdom. Now, I can't get into all of the details tonight, but suffice it to say that Jesus is not necessarily talking about all of the old covenant laws and commands when he makes this statement. He's, he's talking about the laws and the commands that are reiterated and reinforced in his teachings and what's reiterated and reinforced, reinforced as the church grows and is guided by the Holy Spirit. We touched on that in last week's message, so if you'd like to hear more on that, check it out. It's on YouTube or Spotify. And so after Jesus says these things about the laws and the commands of God, that, that they must be upheld, he goes on to express the significance of being upright even further by stating what he states in verse 20, which is what our focus is going to be on tonight. Uh, so let, let's read, let's reread Matthew chapter 5 and let's read verse 20. This is going to be our focus. It says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Yeesh. What does Jesus mean when he says this? You know, I thought the Pharisees and the scribes were the bad guys, right? I thought they were the bad guys. And now Jesus is here telling us that if we have any hope of getting into the kingdom of heaven, they are the standard that we need to surpass. On the scale of righteousness, they're closer to the top than anybody else. He seems to be saying that the scribes and the Pharisees, they have a high level of righteousness. And it would certainly seem that way to the people of his time as well. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were highly religious. They were very religious. They spent their lives studying and memorizing and applying the commands of God. They spent so much of their lives analyzing the commands of God, that they began to add on to God's commands. They began to add on to it. And eventually what would end up being more important was their interpretations and the traditions rather than the actual law of God. For example, God commanded that no work be done on the Sabbath. Many of you are aware of this command. No work is to be done on the Sabbath. And in their analysis and interpretation, these scribes and Pharisees, they added to that command that no one should carry a burden. No one should carry a burden on the Sabbath, 
which then begs the question, well, what exactly is a burden, right? If that's, the, if that's gonna be the command, okay, well, what's a burden? Don't carry a burden, what's a burden? So they created, they created these, these, these standards by which a burden would be defined. And they said, like, food that equaled the weight of a fig, that was anything heavier than a fig, was a burden. Milk, that was uh, the amount of one swallow of milk. More than that, that's a burden. Ink, ink enough to write two letters. Anything more, more ink than what's enough to write two letters, that was considered a burden. The, the, the weight of a writing utensil, that was considered a burden. All of these things constituted a burden and could not be physically carried on the Sabbath. If you did, you were considered to have broken the law of God, broken the law of the Sabbath where God said, where God commands not to do any work. It got so complicated that there would be questions as to whether or not moving a lamp as you walk through your house, like, is, 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 is this carrying a burden? Is this considered work? Is this breaking the Sabbath? Could, could a parent carry their child on the Sabbath? Could you apply a bandage to a wounded person on the Sabbath? All of these questions and details and complications that sprung from the command, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. And this kind of attitude and, and apparent commitment to stay true to God's commands is what caused the people of this day to view the scribes and the Pharisees as those who had a superior righteousness. All of these external adherences but at the end of the day, that's exactly what all of these things were. They were merely external, merely external. And they weren't, they weren't even adherences to the commands of God. They were adherences to the traditions that had developed over time as people analyzed and interpreted the heart out of God's commands. And that's why Jesus is going to get into the heart of God's commands in the coming uh, verses that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. But none of those supposed adherences or observances of God's commands had anything to do with the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was all an outward show. Which is why Jesus said what he said in verse 20. It may have seemed like Jesus was using the scribes and the Pharisees as an example of righteousness to shoot for and surpass if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that, that's half true. It's half true. They were the example that he was using, that, that, and, and that you do need to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, but he was not co-signing on their righteousness. He was not co-signing on the way that they went about gaining their supposed righteousness. Jesus has been clearly, clearly stating in the Sermon on the Mount so far that he is not interested in the outward appearance. His concern is the issue of the heart. Everything that he had been saying in the Beatitudes has been completely contrary to what people would think grants you access into the kingdom of heaven. What would make you good enough for heaven? It's not about confidence in your performance or confidence in what you think you are prepared to do for God. It's about knowing that you have zero to offer. You have zero to offer and that you are at his mercy, falling on his mercy and having confidence in his mercy and not your performance. That's how Jesus 
starts the Beatitudes. This is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount. He's in Matthew 5, verse 3. What does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is not yours because you are able to externally adhere to all of the obligations and traditions, because you tithe of all that you get, because you pray super long prayers, because you refuse to hold an umbrella on a rainy day because it's the Sabbath. That's not how you are good enough for heaven. That's, the kingdom of heaven is not yours because of these things. The kingdom of heaven is yours because you know that it has absolutely nothing to do with any merit that you could possibly bring to the table. You know that it's because Jesus provides you with all the merit necessary for your forgiveness and salvation. You're a muddy kid. You're just, you're just a muddy kid. And the only reason you're allowed into that palace is that Jesus has given you his robe to wear. And if there's one thing that I want all of you guys to understand tonight, one thing that I want you all to remember tonight is this. Jesus is 100% correct when he says that your righteousness, it must surpass the righteousness of the strictest and staunchest religious leader if you want to be good enough for heaven. And I want you also to understand that doesn't mean that the strictest and staunchest religious leader is necessarily the standard. No, no. Jesus is the standard. The standard is Jesus. Jesus has always been the standard. And there's no way in heaven or hell that you are able to achieve that level of righteousness on your own. Absolutely none. The Lord gave me one mission tonight. He gave me one mission tonight. And that's to strip all of you of any confidence that you may have in your own performance. Any confidence that you may have in your own ability to be able to make yourself good enough. And I know that I personally cannot do this. This is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can do this. I can say all the things that I want, but if the Holy Spirit is not speaking to you, nothing's going to matter. So being that this is the task of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to use the tool that the Holy Spirit loves to use the most. I'm going to be using his sword, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. But before we get into the word, let me just say this. There are, there are two ways in which you can display that you have confidence in yourself, confidence in your performance above your confidence in the performance in Christ. The first is the typical display that we usually associate with someone who has confidence in their own performance, the proud and the arrogant display, right? Uh, you know, look, at, look at what I've done. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can do for God. I am mighty for the Lord. That's where we usually think of when we, when we think of somebody who has confidence in themselves, confidence in their performance, someone who is trusting in themselves rather than trusting in the Lord for ultimate salvation and forgiveness. But the other way that we display that we have a confidence in self is not something that you would necessarily think. And, and that's the person who is unsure of their standing with God because of their performance or lack thereof. Why would I say that? Well, if someone is unsure about their standing with God, wouldn't that mean that they don't have the confidence in their own performance? That's exactly what that means. And that's exactly my point. They don't have confidence because of how badly they're performing. 
which means if they were performing well, they would have confidence in their performance. Uncertainty about their performance and their standing with God, it proves that they are trusting in themselves at the end of the day. It may be masquerading as humility, uh, as, 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 as like a conviction of sin before God, but if you are unsure about your position with God because you have been falling and failing to perform, you have a gross misunderstanding of what makes you good enough for God. A gross misunderstanding. It's not your performance. It's not your performance that makes you right with God, and it's not your lack of performance that makes you at odds with God. It's all about the faith that you place in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. People need to be set free tonight. People need to be set free. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? You don't have to turn there, but this is what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. A lot of people will quote this verse, John 14, 6, when they want to prove the exclusivity of Jesus. They want to prove the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to heaven as opposed to these other false religions. And that is an accurate application of this verse. I want to apply this verse tonight to drive the point that it's not about your performance it's not about what you can do. Be set free by the fact that your salvation has nothing to do with your performance. Jesus is saying it himself. You don't come to the Father by your merit. You come to the Father through me. Through me. Release yourself from this burden of having to perform. Jesus gets you in the door. Jesus, he gets you into the palace. He gets you into the kingdom. And what's required of you? John 6, verse 29. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. That's not a physical requirement. That's not a physical requirement. That's not performance-based. That's the resolve of the mind and the heart to consciously change your mind and to agree to view Jesus as he is persuading you to view him. There is no doing involved, just belief. Now, before any, any borderline legalists that may be in here start having a cow, I'm not talking about the implications of the faith, the after effects of a changed heart that is the result of faith. I am talking about entrance into the kingdom, the first step of being redeemed, the first step of a redeemed life in Christ, just getting in the door. There is no doing. There is only believing. In John chapter 8, while Jesus is in the temple, the religious leaders, they present to him a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The punishment for this crime, she was to be stoned to death. We're going to throw rocks at her until she stops breathing. That was the punishment for this crime. Jesus, he stoops down. He begins to write something in the ground. Nobody knows what it was. But then he, 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 he gets back up and he says, anybody in here who is without sin, you be the first one to throw a rock at her. Of course, everybody knew that they were sinners. They weren't, they weren't that delusional where they were just like, oh, no, not me. No, they, they were aware of their own sinful uh, habits. So they all just started to walk away. 
until everyone departed. Everyone was gone. The only people that were left was Jesus and this adulterous woman. And this is what it says in John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It says, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. What did this woman do to earn this forgiveness? What did she do? Nothing. She did nothing. The only thing that she did was she stood in the middle of all the commotion. She heard the charges that were being brought against her, charges that were true. She did commit adultery. And she awaited the judgment that was to come. Like, well, I guess, I guess this is the end. She didn't undo the adultery. She didn't go back to her husband to now try to be the best wife that she could possibly be. She didn't go and punish herself in order to balance out her ledger. Like, oh, I've done this evil thing, so now I got I to make myself suffer now. She stood there. She stood there. And she waited for the mercy of God to appear. That's all she could do. She had no other choice, either that or death. She stood there and waited for the mercy of God to appear, and she received that mercy when it became available to her. No doing, only believing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is pointing out to the believers that this message of the cross of Christ, uh, in the eyes of those who are unsaved, it's foolishness. This is a foolish message. And it is. It, it, it's a pretty foolish message, if you ask me. You're telling me that if I believe that some random Jew who was crucified by the Romans oh, just over 2,000 years ago, that if I believe in that, that I believe that he did that, that that means I'm going to be forgiven, that I'm going to have peace with God? It sounds silly. It sounds silly. But that's exactly the message that God has used to save us. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters... Verse 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence." It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying that this new life in Christ had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with you. He didn't save you. God did not save you because you had wisdom within yourself to understand. He didn't save you because you were powerful enough to save yourself. He didn't save you because you were righteous enough on your own. That's not why you were accepted by him. You were accepted by him because he became your wisdom. He became your punishment. He became your power to save. He became your righteousness. He made you holy he brought you back. He bought you back by paying a price for you. And what did you do? Nothing. You did nothing. So you can't boast about your salvation. You can't boast about your salvation as though you had anything to do with it. You had nothing to do with the forgiveness being made available to you. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
you have no choice but to boast in the Lord. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift not from works, so that no one can boast. It doesn't get clearer than that. You were dead in your trespasses. You lived among the world, walking in its ways. You carried out the sinful inclinations of your flesh and your thoughts. You were by nature a child under wrath. You were destined for the wrath of God because of your sinful nature. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for you, he made you alive in Christ. He saved you from his own wrath. He placed you in heaven. What did you do to receive this? Nothing. Nothing. You have been saved by grace through faith. This is God's gift to you. It's, it's, it's not from works. Why? So that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. You can't brag about your salvation as if you had anything to do with it. Your performance did nothing for you because your performance is not good enough. His performance, the performance of Christ was sufficient And he is the reason that you are forgiven and saved from hell. You don't do anything. You only believe. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, it says this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No doing. No doing. Only believing. When Jesus was being crucified for our sins, he was placed in between two thieves who were also being crucified. And they were, they were witnessing the insults being hurled at Jesus. They were aware of the charges that were brought against Jesus. They, they knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, Savior in the world. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. It says, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, 
Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. One thief was mocking him. The other thief realized who he was. He believed in Jesus. And, and this is evidenced by the fact that he told Jesus to remember him when he enters back into his kingdom. He didn't do anything. He didn't perform. He was so far removed from performing good works that he was actually suffering the penalty for his law-breaking and sinfulness. No merit. He had no merit to fall back on. And Jesus assured him, he said, on this very day, because, spoiler alert, thief, you're going to die today. On this day, you will be with me in paradise, is what Jesus told him. Why? Why did he say that? Because of belief. Because of belief. There were no works involved. It was belief. The only work that was involved was the work of believing and receiving the salvation. And to round out this portion of, of, of stripping you all of, of the confidence, any confidence that you may have in yourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only in him that we have any hope of becoming the righteousness of God, of having a righteousness good enough for heaven, of having a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, because the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees is not a righteousness that appears righteous on the outside. It's not about performing better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a perfect righteousness that only comes from God. It only comes from God, and it's a righteousness that is made available to every single human being by grace through faith. His free gift of righteousness, his imputed righteousness, is the only righteousness that can surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's not to give any props to the scribes and the Pharisees and their righteousness. That's, that it just points out that if you don't have the righteousness of God in Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have ever heard Pastor John say, but he says, you know, you jump 300 feet, I jump three feet, we both still miss the mark. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much of a better person you are than the next person. If it's not the righteousness of Christ, it means nothing. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was nothing. It was nothing. It's all about the righteousness of Christ. That's the righteousness that you must possess if you have any hope of entering into the kingdom of heaven. And it's available for free. It's available for free by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you think that, it, that there is ever, if you think that there is ever anything that you can do to assist 
in adding on to this righteousness from God. You are severely, severely misinformed and you are severely disregarding and invalidating God's perfect work. If you think to yourself, well, now that you have been made right with God through his own doing, through God's own doing, that you now have the ability to sustain that righteousness and right standing with God through your performance, you are believing in a critical, critical error. Was his sacrifice not enough? Was it not enough? Is, is the righteousness that he achieved and provided to you not enough? Was there something missing from his sacrifice that you have to make sure that you supplement his righteousness with some of your own in order to keep that tank full? So now you have to do this and that. You have, you have to go over here and do that. Like, well, I mean, look, look, I know his sacrifice was enough, but I got to make sure I do my part to make sure. It's like this one time I was having lunch with one of the, with one of the, the leaders here at Zeal. I told him that, hey, let's have lunch. I'll buy lunch. I'm buying lunch. Um, you know, I'll place the order. You just got to go pick it up. So the day came, placed the order online. He went to go pick it up, came down. And right as, right as we're about to, like, you know, get ready to, to eat, um, pulls out, he pulls out some cash. And he tries to, he tries to give me some money to, to, pay, to pay for lunch. And I'm just like, dude, get your, get your money out of here. Like, get it out of my face. Like, I, I told you, like, I was, I was going to pay for lunch. I'm, I'm treating for lunch. I knew what I was doing when I invited him for lunch, okay? I, I, knew, I knew that I was going to be paying the full price for his meal and my meal. And I was not expecting or anticipating or like hoping that, you know, he would try to contribute at all. I didn't, I didn't even want to entertain the, the, the offer. You know, it's funny when people were, it's, I don't know if you guys ever gotten this sense when someone, you go out to eat with somebody, like, oh, don't worry. I was like, before you, before you go, like, I, I got you, like, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for lunch. And then like the check comes and, you know, because, because you believe them, like you don't even try to, you know, oh no, I'll let me, no, no, fight, fake fight, fake fight. I'm not, I really don't want to pay, but I'm just, you know, I have to keep up appearances, you know, but you know, you don't do that. And, and then they're just kind of like, you're not even going to offer. Like, like, I hate that. It's so silly. Don't say you're going to do something. If, if you say you're going to treat me to lunch, Hey, I'm getting lobster, baby. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just saying, um, but that, that's how a lot of us, we, we, we treat God. This is how we treat God's offer of righteousness and salvation. You know, he said he paid the full price. He paid all of it. He said that all you need to do is believe. Yet we still try to pull out our wallet and be like, hey, God, let me cover my half. You can't. It's impossible. You can't cover your half. And this type of thinking, it can carry over into our our new lives as, as we begin walking with the Lord. We start to think that if we do all the right things, then God's love will abound in those situations more than when we're not doing the right things. We start to get puffed up about all of the things that we're doing for Christ. And we start viewing our brothers and sisters uh, who, who aren't quite on our level with, with, with like an arrogant pity. You poor peasant. If only you were as holy and devoted as I was. I only read the King James. Yes. 
Yes. Uh, I consult the Greek and the Hebrew. Do you? And I only sing hymns from the 14th century in Latin. You know, we laugh at that, but don't get it twisted because the arrogance comes from the other side too. My heart grieves for you. My heart grieves so much for you. You need to be more spirit-filled. I wish you had more of the spirit in your life. God won't understand you unless you're speaking in tongues. Did you know that? I saw a cloud in the sky the other day, and I knew, I knew that the Lord was confirming to me that I should get whipped cream on my latte. I just, the, the spirit speaks to me in such amazing ways. What do you mean when you worship, you don't sing the chorus 15 times and then the bridge 20 times and then the chorus again another 15 times? How will the spirit know when to come down? Sorry if I've offended anybody, but I'm not. But the point is, the point is, God is not more pleased with you if you spend hours and hours reading the word and praying He's not more pleased with you if, if you spend hours and hours singing the same chorus and bridge over and over again. I'm sorry, I had to come back to that. Uh, his love and approval for you, it's constant. It's constant because the righteousness that is in you is constant. It's constant because the righteousness that is in you, which surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, is his very own righteousness. It's his very own righteousness, and that righteousness is perfect. It's perfect. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You most definitely can't do anything to add to it. Definitely not. So just receive it. Just receive God's righteousness, the full tank of righteousness. Just receive it and be set free from the pressure of performing, of trying to perform to earn his favor. With that said, like I've been saying for the past two weeks, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there is no expectation of the believer to now live a life of holiness and repentance. The coming weeks of our time in the Sermon on the Mount is going to reveal that. There is an expectation of repentance and obedience, but that's because you are already in the kingdom. That's because you already have all of the righteousness that you could possibly need to be in the kingdom. Christ already got you in. So get rid of any ideas in your head that tell you that you need to do something to earn or add to his perfect work. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel, and you're trampling. You are trampling on the work that he did on the cross. He, he paid a huge price to give you the full tank of righteousness, to impute to you all of the righteousness that you could ever need. He paid such a great price. And you're going to be like, oh, no, but let me help you out with that. Don't do that. Don't do that. He died to set you free. He died to set you free from the prison of having to be good enough, the prison of having to balance your good deeds with your bad deeds. He set you free from that futile exercise because it would have provided you with nothing in the end. Provide you with nothing. It's only his righteousness, his righteousness that is sufficient. And he's offering it to all of us for free. It's free. Now, if there's anybody in here who 
has not taken that righteousness. If there's anybody in here who is still falling back on their own righteousness, thinking that, oh, I still got to make sure I'm good enough, you got the wrong thinking. Christ has done it all. He finished it. The work was finished. He was the perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect life, and he is offering to just simply transfer into your account his perfect righteousness, and then you're done. You're set. You're in the kingdom. We can talk about the expectations later, but just access into the kingdom of God and being a new person, Christ already did that. So if there's anybody in here who is falling back on their own righteousness and you think that you are going to add to that, be it you're a believer and you're, you're starting to, de- to be deceived that you need to start working, or maybe you're, you're not a believer. You've never made a, a profession of faith in Jesus. You've never fully accepted his righteousness. I want to pray for you. So let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this opportunity, God, to, to just, for all of us to be ministered, God, by, by your grace and your love, to, to, to hear about how much you've done for us. You've given us the full tank of righteousness that we need in order to be right with you, in order to, to be let into the kingdom. You've wiped away all of our mud, and you, you're saying, here, just put my robe on, and you can come in. And so, Father, I I pray for for those in here who maybe are falling back on their own righteousness incorrectly. And so, while everyone's head bowed and everyone's eyes closed, I just want to make the offer to anybody in here who's falling back on their own righteousness. If you want to repent of that, then I want to pray for you. So please just raise your hand if that's you, if that describes you, if you've fallen back on your own righteousness, if you think that you are going to add to what God has already done, raise your hand. Amen. 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 Anybody else? Amen. Anybody else? And that goes to everybody, believer, non-believer. If you're in here, you're like, I hate Jesus when you first walked in the door, but now you're like, ah, he's sounding kind of good. If that's you, raise your hand as well. I want to pray for you. All right, let's pray. Father, I, I, God, you saw, you saw the hands, Lord. You saw the people who, who lifted up their hands because they are falling back on their own righteousness. They think that, that they are going to make a difference in, in their standing with you. God, I pray, I thank you for convicting them tonight. God, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to them tonight. And God, I pray that you would restore to them or bring to them for the first time a confidence, not in themselves, but a confidence in your righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, this perfect righteousness that you have achieved and that you are offering to us for free through faith. And so God, I just, I pray for the believers who raise their hands. I pray for any non-believers who raise their hands. I pray God that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation that is based on your righteousness. It's not their own. I thank you, God, for speaking tonight. And I pray that you would just be blessed, Lord, by the rest of our time as we worship you in song. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.